0: Well, if you would turn to Luke seven the title, of the message is Centurion Faith, part one, Luke seven and beginning in verse one and we read there, it says, now, when he, Jesus had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum and a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Well, then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither... Thought I myself worthy to come unto you, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goes. I say to another one, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, well, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. And this is a pretty familiar account to us here. A Roman soldier stationed in Capernaum, he's a centurion that means he's over a hundred soldiers. Century means a hundred. A Roman legion had 6,000 men, and so a legion would have 60 centurions, over 100 men each. That's what it consisted of. It was unusual for them to have troops here in Capernaum, and they were probably there because it was a prosperous city, and it was also right in line on a major east-west trade route. Rome wants to make sure they're gonna get their taxes paid and there's peace in this area, so that's why he's there. On the other hand, we have Jesus. We talked about this in Mark, just to remind you, but most of his ministry, if you don't know, took place in Capernaum. Mark 2, it refers to this Capernaum as Jesus's home. And in Matthew 9, it talks about it as being his own city. This is where he lived. So he did have a place he lived. He did have a house that he stayed in. He wasn't just constantly out wandering in the fields and sleeping with his head on a rock i'm sure he did that some because he said he did but this was his base of operations and from here his fame is spreading everywhere if you read in all the accounts leading up to this his fame as a healer as a miracle worker is spreading everywhere so what we have here to me it's a gripping account if you really read it and think about what it's saying but you have great need with this centurion meeting great power in the lord jesus christ that's what you have Even though this story involves healing, the emphasis, I think, and the point of this story, though, is found in verse 9. Let's look at it again. It says, when Jesus heard these things, it says he marveled at him, the centurion, and turned about and said unto the people that followed him, that I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. My thing is, that should interest us. That this man has great faith. It interests me. What is it about this man? What is it about what's taking place here that he has this great faith because that's what I want. That's what I want because I don't always feel like I have great faith. So just because you're a disciple doesn't mean you automatically have great faith. Do you know that? And it's not a put down if you don't. Because think about this. In Matthew 14, Jesus sends his disciples out ahead of him in a boat. And it says this great wind comes on them and they begin to be tossed to and fro. They're fighting that wind and it had to be for most of the night because it says it's on the fourth watch. Well, the fourth watch is early in the morning. And that's when we know the story. I'm not telling you a story you don't know. But the fourth watch early in the morning. So they've been struggling all night and they look and, you know, the old song we used to sing. Here comes Jesus walking on the water and here he comes walking on the water. And they see Him, and it says they scream like girls in fear because they think they're seeing a spirit. The thing about the Lord is He's always got a positive attitude, doesn't He? <laughs> because He's filled with faith. And what does He tell them? Hey, girls, settle down. Be of good <laughs> cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. I feel like that a lot of times. I feel like a little girl in a trial. Lord, help me! <laughs> it's like, there He is, though. Every time you do that, if you listen, he's saying, be of good cheer. You don't have to worry. It is I. Be not afraid. I'm right here with you. Because of that, Peter gets a little gumption about him or whatever. <laughs> and he's emboldened and he says, Lord, you know, if that really is you, <laughs> he still wasn't 100% certain, bid me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus gives him a one word answer. What is he telling? Come. And so Peter gets out of the boat. Begins to walk on the water, he feels the wind, and then his intellect begins to take over. And I think what happened is, I think he watched too much Survivor on the Weather Channel. And some of you will know what I'm talking about. they got this guy that's on there, and you get in all these situations. He's going to tell you how to survive these dire situations. I think Peter must have been watching that, because that guy would have said, here's what you do in a storm on a boat. Lay on the bottom of the boat, lay still, and wait for help to come. Because that's what they say you're supposed to do if you get stuck in an elevator. Whatever, right? But here's Peter. He's got to be thinking, "What in the world am I doing? How did I get myself here? I'm pretty far away from that boat. I can't grab the edge of it." And here's, I think this is Jesus, and it says he cries out for help, doesn't he? And it said the Lord reaches out and catches him, stretches out his hand and catches him. But then, what does it say that Jesus says to him? Does it say he marvels at Peter? he praise him like he did the centurion for his great faith because we know what he says you don't get tones you don't get whatever in the bible do you you just get what was said so you don't know exactly how it was said but i, I think he probably gently rebuked him and said oh thou of little faith it's a word that's not used very much in the new testament wherefore did you doubt he said he had little faith relatively small faith Few is how the word's used elsewhere. It means, compared to the centurion who had great faith, much faith, he's saying, you just got a little bit of faith. little bit of faith. Now, if I was sitting in the boat watching all that, I'd have probably thought, you know, well, I think Peter really, I I think he did a great thing doing that. I think you're being a little hard on him, Lord, because I'm still sitting in the boat, because that's probably where I would have been, sitting in the boat. Where does that leave me? Because Peter's little faith was at least starter faith. Haven't we all been there where you start out on a trial and your intention is to walk to Jesus and you get out there and you panic? And Lord, help, save me. I mean, haven't we all been there? And we hear him say to us, oh, thou of little faith, that's what he'll say, won't he? So we have to ask ourselves, where are we at? So We saw how he looked at the centurion's faith. He looked at him and he marveled. He looked at Peter, who was a disciple, who was going to be the leader of the church. But at that point, he's saying, oh, thou, oh, you, Peter of little faith. Why did you doubt? He's asking him, where are we at? Would he look at you and would he marvel? And would he say, I've not found so great a faith in all of Shelby County? But it says in verse nine, if you look back there, that when Jesus heard these things He marveled at the centurion face, and that word marvel, it gives the idea of admiration, but it's more than that even. It's also, there's this element of surprise to it. You know, my little boy, John Robert, just all of a sudden one day, he has got this thing where he can take this clay of different colors, and he's got this little knife and I'm telling you, I, don't, I watch him do it. I still don't know how he does it. But he cuts that clay up. He makes these little figures about that big that they look exactly, I mean, exactly like Tails, Webkins, whatever these little cartoon things are. And I'm thinking, when I saw him doing that, I marveled because I admired that he can do it. But I was also surprised. I'm like, man, where did you get that talent? You didn't go to school. You sure didn't get it from me. You can't even cut your peanut butter and jelly sandwich in half and you're sculpturing these little things. (laughs) To me, it's a marvel. (laughs) And typically, people that marveled in the New Testament, they're marveling. It's their reaction to Jesus, to what he's done. For example, in Matthew 9, they bring him a demon-possessed man that was dumb, not stupid. He was dumb. He couldn't speak. And it said, Jesus cast that spirit out, and it said the man could speak. And it says this, it says, the multitudes marveled, saying it was never so seen in Israel. And in Matthew 15, it says, and great multitudes came unto him, Jesus having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, meaning they had limbs that were missing or injured that they couldn't use. And many others. And it says they cast them down at Jesus feet and he healed them in so much that the multitude, again, they're seeing this happen. I would have liked to have seen that. Now, I've seen some things happen. You can watch on YouTube and you can see some of those old A.A. Allen, Jack Coe videos and you can see some legs grow out right in front of you right there. That's not made up stuff. I mean, could you imagine, though, seeing arms just instantly restored to anything? Demons coming out of people screaming, and they're obviously, something's wrong with them, and now there's nothing wrong with them? I'd be marveling, too. That's what it says they did. And so much the multitudes marveled when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see. And it says, we'll talk about this later, it says when they saw that they marveled and it said they glorified the God of Israel. So in both of those cases, there's those elements of admiration and surprise. They're saying how is he doing this? God has visited us. But they're also, they're surprised. We haven't ever seen anything like this before that's happened. And they've never seen anything like it. But here in verse 9, In Luke 7, 9, we read that Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. He marveled at his faith, and there it is. He admires his faith, but I think he also, I think that faith that he's finding here in the centurion, it surprises him. He wasn't expecting it. Now, in saying that, I don't think he was upset about it, (laughs) that this guy's got faith, just the opposite. As you think about it, how was it possible for the centurion to have great faith? How was that possible? Where did it come from? We'd have to know and get our Bible. Faith comes from only one source if we have it. It is a gift from God the Father, isn't it? It's not like this centurion just had something. He just, well, I wish I had what he had. No, it's always a gift from God, always, no matter what. So when the Jewish cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, the same town, they rejected Jesus despite seeing all his miracles, here's what Jesus said. This is why I'm saying he's seeing this faith in this centurion. It's not upsetting him at all. He's admiring it. He's marveling. But Jesus said this when those towns rejected him. He says, I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hid these things from the wise and prudent But you've revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. So he would have marveled, but he would have also rejoiced. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. He knew salvation was going to come to the Gentiles. And he's seeing a little precursor of it here. But here his father has sent this Gentile, put him in his place. He's not expecting this at this point. You know there's only one other place in the New Testament in the entire New Testament where it says that Jesus marvelled. You know where that's at? Well, if you would turn to it, turn back uh, to Mark 6. So Mark 6 beginning in verse 1. Verse 1 it says and he Jesus went out from thence and came into his own country and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come he began to teach in the synagogue and many hearing him they're astonished saying, from once hath this man these things. This man, they're saying. And what wisdom is this which is given unto him? They're recognizing the authority in his words, the wisdom, and they're recognizing that he's doing works that are out of the ordinary, his own people. Pay attention to that. And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? And then they go on to say, that, well, isn't this the carpenter? The floor guy? The plumber? the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters? <laughs> sisters are here with us. And look, they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And here, this second place that talks about him marveling, and he marveled, but for an opposite reason of what we read before. He marveled. Why? Because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. So twice Jesus marveled. He saw faith where he wasn't expecting it. And a Gentile soldier, someone that wasn't raised in the scriptures, had no idea about the scriptures. And then he's marveling the second time where he sees unbelief, I think, where he wasn't expecting it. The people he's talking to, they went to the synagogue every week. They knew the scriptures. They saw his wisdom. They see there's something about him that's not ordinary. They've seen his miracles he's doing. And yet, just because they know him, they're offended by him. And they refuse to believe. Unbelief. That means, ah, There's no belief there. No trust. No willingness to put their trust in him at all. Look back, if you would. There's two accounts given. The synoptic Gospels means they usually have the same account in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, Mark doesn't have the account of the centurion, but we do have it back in Matthew. So if you would turn, I want to look at back in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 8. It's right after the Sermon on the Mount. I want to look at the account there the very end of it. Verse 10 after the centurion said, I say to one, go, and he goes, come, and he comes, do this, and he do it. Verse 10, it says, when Jesus heard him say that, he marveled, there it is again, and he said to them that followed, truly I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. But look what he goes on to say, this isn't in Luke's account. And he said, and I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but he says, the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, what's he doing there? What's Jesus doing there? He is rebuking and warning Israel about what? So he just commended the centurion for his great faith. He's really rebuking them and warning them about what? Their unbelief. Because what they thought was they thought that their seats in the kingdom of God were guaranteed because of their birth, because of the church, because of attendance, because they were God's chosen. That's what they thought. And so it's like we've got the word, we've got the temple, we've got God's presence. And that's what they thought. And Jesus is telling them something here. He's saying, entrance into the kingdom of God has only got one ticket. There's only one ticket that's going to get you in there. And what is that? Faith. Faith in Jesus. (laughs) It's faith. It's trust in God. And he tells them, many will come from the east and west and just south, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, he's talking to Israel. The children, the ones that thought they would be there. The children of the kingdom are going to be cast out into outer darkness. That's bad news there. That's a solemn warning. But listen, it's not just for Israel. It's a solemn warning for all of us, isn't it? It really is. Because Paul wrote to the Gentile Christians in Rome in the book of Romans. He said, look, the Jews were broken off of the vine. Broken off so you could be grafted in. And that's us. That's us Gentiles grafted in. But he warns them this way. He says this in Romans 11. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. But you stand by faith. Be not high-minded, he says, but fear. Unbelief broke them off, and we stand how? How do we stand? By faith, and faith in the living God we can't be worried about other churches and what they do and don't believe and measure ourselves by them we're responsible each of us individually for the revelation that God has given us aren't we and that's all I'm saying so some of us we've heard this have more light than others but we're responsible to walk in the light God has given us that's the way it is I'm not coming on anybody for missing it or failing in a trial because here's why we've All missed it. You know, is there anyone in here that can raise their hand and say they have always fully trusted God? Can anyone do that? I don't have my hand up. I can't. I missed it in a trial. I had this attitude like, man, anybody that goes to a hospital, (laughs) I can't believe they would do that. I mean, I had an attitude like that at one time. And lo and behold, my wife and I Back in 1988, we have a baby at home, and things, it couldn't have been a worse nightmare. And I realized going through that, that my prayers aren't getting any higher than this ceiling, than that trial. That this is chastisement for being critical of Brother Hamilton. We lost a baby. And here's my wife has been through labor. She has no feeling in her lower body. And I'm like, you know, I don't have any faith at that point. I mean, I feel like I'm in trouble with the Lord. She went to the hospital? I'm doing the thing I'm criticizing everybody else about. That's how God does a work in you. Nobody's criticizing anybody about that. But God still, despite that, expects us to trust him and to grow in faith. He expects that. We need to understand. So unbelief is never praised or given a pass, is it? It never is. Uh, not trusting the Lord. It's never given a pass in the Bible. Peter wasn't. He failed. Jesus didn't get rid of him. He worked. He says, you got little faith. And he's working on that little faith. But he didn't say, hey, that's okay, Peter. Don't worry about it. Did he? I mean, it's getting quiet, but we've got to just be honest with the Bible, don't we? I mean, that's all. I'm just trying to say it as nice as I can and be honest with it. Like, i got to be honest with it. So if you would, turn over to Hebrews 3. God expects us to trust him. Hebrews three beginning in verse 12. So Paul is in Hebrews three here he's exhorting them to not harden their hearts towards the Lord like Israel did when they were in the wilderness in Hebrews 3:12 he says this he finally says, "Well take heed, that means watch brethren, lest there be in any of you what an evil heart of unbelief and that happens when when you depart from the living God. Part of what he says that we're to do with one another, and here, you know, we don't need watchdogs going around, getting on everybody, but it does say in verse 13, but exhort one another, or I would say encourage one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Go over to verse 18, look what he goes on to say. He says, and here's the seriousness of it. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. Now that word actually there means obeyed not. But he goes on in verse 19 and says, so we see they could not enter in because of, and there's our word again, unbelief. There shouldn't really be a chapter break there. one says, let us therefore fear, lest a promise Being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the good news preached, as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So listen, I was glad myself. Early on, I heard the faith message, and some people were like, oh, that was so hard. Well, I'll tell you, I was glad that I heard that God expects me to trust him. I'm glad I heard that because I had a pastor of another charismatic church that lived two houses down from me. He knew about Hobart Freeman. And he says, yeah, well, I heard he puts people under condemnation, this side or the other. And at our church, you know, if you've got a headache and it doesn't go away, just take an aspirin. Don't worry about it. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I, you know, I had coaches. And some coaches would just be like, just do the best you can. And then I had coaches that like expected things out of us and said, this is the way we need to do things. They disciplined us. They were harder. And some people didn't like. Personally, though, at the end of the day, you had a team that's going to actually win a game. (laughs) You're going to actually come out on top. And I told this pastor, I said, well, I'll tell you. All I can say is that there's a lot of trials I probably wouldn't have been able to make it through. But the fact of the matter is he faithfully taught me the word of God and that God doesn't excuse unbelief and expects me to trust him when I can. And I said, so it got me in some hard trials, but I was able to grow in faith. And if you're constantly excusing yourself, I'm thinking to myself, how are you ever going to grow? It just isn't going to happen. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. An evil heart of unbelief. And that's what kept them out. What was it, if you go and read Psalm 78, what was it that they didn't believe that kept them out of the promised land? What was it they weren't trusting God for? You think, well, it had to be some great thing, like seeing a star fall from the sky. What was it? Food and water. Physical things. Can God do this for us? And he got upset. The Lord got upset because it said they trusted not in His salvation. They wouldn't believe Him for food and water. Now, Derek Prince said this in a book. He said, If we had complete and unreserved faith in three aspects of God's nature, His goodness, His wisdom, and His power, we would never disobey God. If in every situation we could believe, And think about this, if we could believe that God is good, that he only wants the best for us, and if we could also just believe that he has the wisdom to know what is best and the power to provide it, then we would never have any motive for disobedience. And he says this at the end, all disobedience against God is traced back to its origin and it comes from unbelief. Isn't that right? You just, I thought that was good. Trust in his goodness, his wisdom, and his power. That's all he asks us to do. I mean, that sounds simple, and we know it's not that simple, is it? Because we got the world, the flesh, and the devil coming against us in a big-time way. And that's a battle, isn't it? It is. We've all been in trials. We all know what it's like. It's not easy. But if you would turn to 2 Chronicles 14, I want to walk through this story of Asa here. 2 Chronicles 14, we're saying God expects us to trust him. Asa, when he became king, and there were several kings that were reformers, they came on the scene. Israel was not in a good state, and they had to clean things up. They had to get people back to where they're seeking the Lord and looking to trust him. Asa commanded all of Israel when he became king to seek the Lord and to obey his commandments. In other words, he said, y'all need to put God first and to be doers of the word. And amazingly, the people... Obeyed him. You're in chapter 14. Look in verse 4. Is what I said. And he commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandments. They sought the Lord, they obeyed his word. You know what that means they were doing? When you seek the Lord and you obey his word, you know what that's called? That's called walking in fellowship with the Lord. And you won't have trouble getting your prayers answered. You won't be afraid of trials when they come along. But that's what they were doing. Why I say that is, is because after that you read that one million Ethiopians come against little Judah. One million to destroy them. And Asa cried out to the Lord. Look at it in verse 11. Look what it says. And Asa cried unto the Lord his God and says, look at this prayer. Lord, it is nothing with you to help whether with many or with them that have no power. You ever felt like that? Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rest on you. And in your name we go against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God, and let not man prevail against us. That is the way to pray. That's the way to pray. Look at it again. Lord, it's nothing with you to help, nothing, whether with many or with them that have no power. I put myself there. Help us, he says, O Lord, our God. We rest on you, and in thy name we go against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Let not man prevail against you. He puts it in God's court, doesn't he? They think they're attacking us. Lord, they're coming against you because we're... Your people. And did it work? Did that prayer work? You bet. You know why? Because we say it all the time. Because God is faithful. What did the Lord do? They're doing the right thing here, aren't they? They're seeking the Lord. They're putting Him first. They're just walking in His commandments. That doesn't earn them a thing. Do you know that? Walking in the commandments doesn't earn you the right to claim God's going to bless you. It just keeps away the hindrance. Because they still say, we have no power. Look, at, we're nothing compared to what's coming on us. And we look to you, we need your help. You don't see anything in there where he's like, look how we've lived, Lord. You don't see him putting that before him. So God sent Asa, when this happens after this battle, he sends him a prophet. He wants to encourage him and Judah. Just keep doing what you're doing so I can bless you and be with you. Look at it, look at the beginning of chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa when he's coming back and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. Listen up. The Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. And let me hear an amen. Amen. Because that's the truth, isn't it? And what does he go on to say? But if you forsake him, then what will happen? He will forsake you. That's an amen too. It's just, that's the way it'll be. Now for a long season, Israel had been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But look what it says in verse four. But when they in their trouble did turn unto the God of Israel and did what? And sought him, then he was found of them. Are you in trouble today? There's the answer, isn't it? There's the answer right there. Get before the Lord. Seek the Lord. Wait on him, and he will come and help you. Won't he? He will. There's a man, I got several of his books. He was uh, part of the Salvation Army back when the Salvation Army, I mean, they had truly some very godly men and women that were part of their group back in the day. I don't know that much about them today. I don't think they're anywhere near like they used to be. But there were some people that had a love for God, and the power of God was on their life. Samuel Bringle, I've got some of his books, he's got some things, and they're some of the best things I've ever read. And I ran across this. He said this. He says, if I were dying and had the privilege of delivering a last exhortation to all the Christians of the world, and that message had to be condensed into three words, I'm thinking, well, what's he going to say? He's dying, his last message, he's going to put it down into three words? He said, I would say, wait on God. He then went on to add this. There is a drawing nigh to God, a knocking at heaven's door, a pleading of the promises, a reasoning with Jesus, a forgetting of self, a turning from all earthly concerns, a holding on with determination to never let go. And he says, when you do that, that puts all the wealth of heaven's wisdom and power and love at the disposal of a little man. I thought, that's me, a little man. You ever feel little like you've been whittled down to little? He says, when you do that, you draw near to God, knock at heaven doors, plead the promises, reason with the Lord. Forget yourself. Turn from all earthly concerns. Hold on with determination to let go. That brings heaven down to you. It'll help a little man. He says, so that when all others tremble and fail and fly, this little man shouts and triumphs and becomes a conqueror in the very face of death or hell. I thought that was good. And that's a guy that is talking because he's experienced it, not just because he read it somewhere else. So Asa, he reigned 41 years over Judah. 41 years he reigned as king. 35 of those years, he sought the Lord, and he had peace. Look in chapter 15, verses 12 to 15. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their... This is all the people. Can we do that? A covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul, and that whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death. Whether small or great, whether man or woman... And they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with cornets and all Judah rejoiced at the oath for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with their whole desire and he was found of them and the Lord gave them rest round about. Could it be as simple as that? People were saying we don't understand what's happening, why this is happening. Could it be as simple as that? Because I'm saying, I've got to believe what the Bible says, not what anyone else says. And it says, if we seek the Lord, obey his commandments, put him first, then he'll be found and he'll bless us, won't he? Now, does that mean people can't have trials? Well, yeah, it's not excluding that. But ultimately, there'll be victory, not defeat, won't there? Yeah, amen. There'll be joy, there'll be praise, there'll be all of those things will be there. But in the 36th year, we get both sides of the story. That's the positive side, I'd say. They sought the Lord, and He delivered them from a million-man army, impossible odds. God was on their side. And that kept going on as long as they sought the Lord and put Him first and did what they knew was right. But then in the 36th year of His reign, Israel decides to attack Judah. Look in chapter 16, in the 6th and 30th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah to the intent that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. And here's what happens. He's been a long time seeking the Lord, but this time, instead of seeking the Lord Asa, I'm not going to seek the Lord. He took money, silver and gold, and he paid the king of Assyria to defeat Israel. Didn't seek the Lord at all. And guess what? God was not happy with that. And he sent Hananiah the seer to Asa to rebuke him. So look in chapter 16, look in verses 7 and 8. And it says, "...at that time Hananiah the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said unto him, "...because you have relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand." And look what he says in verse 8, were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen yet? Because you did rely on the Lord. At that point, he says, he delivered them into thine hand. That had to sting, I would think. He put yourself in Asa's shoes because Asa had experienced God's faithfulness. That's what this prophet's telling him. He, you've experienced his faithfulness in a big-time way. But here's what happened, and it's happened to all of us. He got himself in a backslidden condition. That's what happened. And he wasn't seeking the Lord, but what did he do? He sought man's help. We've got to deal with what the Bible says, don't we? Yeah. That's what it says. And he went on to say, Look in verse 9, we quote this scripture a lot, because he's saying this to him, he says, for the eyes of the Lord, he's looking to help somebody out. He's not looking to punish anybody. But the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him, or it could read, whose heart is completely his. And he says, look what he says at the end of verse 9, Herein, Asa, you have done foolishly. Therefore, from henceforth thou shalt have wars. Well, what was his reaction? What was Asa's reaction to that? Did he fall on his face and repent? You know, did he cry out because there was another king, his father, David, he had a prophet come to him and directly confronted him about his sin and his backslidden state. And you know what David's reaction was when that happened? What did he cry out? It says he cried out, I have sinned against the Lord. But is that what Asa did? Was that Asa's reaction? Look what it says in verse 10. It says, after the prophet spoke, and it was the Spirit of God on this prophet. And then Asa was wroth with the seer. Well, he doesn't understand. Wroth with the seer is being wroth with God. All he did was speak God's words, right? And Asa was wroth with the seer, put him in a prison house, for he was in a rage with him because of this thing. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. Oh, that's a typical reaction when unbelief, or I would say, really, anybody's confronted with their sin. That is really, honestly, isn't that the reaction that you have? When somebody confronts you, isn't your first reaction, you know what they're saying right, but because they're saying something to you, your first reaction is anger, isn't it? Because of pride. Let's just be honest. If somebody comes up and says something to you, you're, generally you're in a bad state to begin with, so you're not going to probably have a spiritual response But you're probably going to get mad because your pride's just been wounded. What would have been the best thing for Asa, for all of us? I mean, we all have to deal with this, is not to justify unbelief or just small faith, starter faith, like Peter. The worst thing Peter's going to do is to get mad at the Lord. Like, what are you getting on me for in front of these other 11? At least I got out of the boat and tried. Yeah, why are you getting on me? Oh, thou of little faith, why did you doubt? I mean, you would doubt too. That's the worst thing we can do. But what we have to do is, all of us, if things aren't where they ought to be, we're not seeing the results we'd like to see, we need to repent and seek the Lord to help you to trust Him. All of us do. We've all been there if we're not there now. And God will. When the father of the epileptic boy cried out in unbelief to Jesus, the demon starts manifesting and there's Jesus asking him questions and he cries out. He's just getting frustrated. The disciples, he thought for sure they could handle this situation and they couldn't. And why couldn't they? When they asked him, why could we not cast them out? The King James will say, because of your unbelief. The newer translations will say, because of the littleness of your faith. Either way, they didn't have what it took. But when this man cries out, he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He's saying that to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and he says, if I can do anything, that's not the problem. He says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Jesus is telling that man and us that the problem is never with Him. It is always with us, isn't it? Always with us. But the story doesn't end there. Praise God, it doesn't end there. Because we read this, and it says, And straightway the father of the child cried out, and he said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine. And here's our word again that was in Hebrews 3. Help mine unbelief. I got it. I'm not going to try to hide it. I'm not going to get mad at you for saying I have it. Please help me because I want to trust you. Isn't that our heart here? I mean, even if you messed up, man, I want to trust you. He marveled in Mark 6 at their unbelief, but here he's helping this guy. He was willing to help those people in his town. It says he went around about teaching. I may help you get faith that comes by the word. What about teaching? And this guy is crying out with tears for Jesus to help his unbelief, wants to be delivered. And when you have an honest cry like that, he will help you. Any of us, he will. And we know he helped him. You know why? Because that boy got delivered. As I'm telling you, he would never have been delivered if that man hadn't had at least a mustard seed of faith, which he didn't have before. Had to have faith. That's the only way. God answers prayer. We need to see that. It's not our tears. It's not our need. It's not our faithfulness. It's not any of that that causes God to respond to prayer. Because it says, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. We don't have to have great faith to get answers to prayer. But we have to have faith, not unbelief. We have to have faith, a willingness to trust Him. If you're struggling with trust in the Lord, but you want to cry out for help, I've been there. All of us have been there to some degree because God wants us to trust him and he wants to help us to be able to trust him. I just say this. If you have failed in a trial, don't rest in defeat. Seek the Lord. Get in the word. Repent of whatever has caused your faith to fail. Because there is no one blanket thing that causes people to fail in a trial or not to have faith. There's a lot of different things that can enter in. Okay, there really is. There's a lot of things that can enter in. Realize this. What we need to realize is that faith is a spiritual fruit that comes from prayer, reading the word. And I'm going to add, it's a revelation of the spirit. Now, I'm not saying you have to have a rhema before you can. I'm not talking about that. But what I am saying, though, is faith is not a matter of willpower, but it is of supernatural power and enabling by the holy spirit our eyes have got to be opened supernaturally because when peter made his great confession of faith thou art the christ the son of the living god jesus says you didn't get that on your own peter flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you that had to be revealed by whom the heavenly father and that's what has to happen our eyes have to be opened supernaturally to be able to see Jesus for who he is. To be able to see him for his power, his wisdom, and his willingness to help us. That's all essential. So you remember we taught on this one time to two men on the road to Emmaus? And it says as they were walking when Jesus first came up, it says their eyes were holden King James or prevented from recognizing Jesus until it says he opened up the word to them their hearts were burning and then it says as he break bread it says their eyes were opened and then it says they knew him but not until God did it that's right i'm not going to teach that whole message but the bible clearly teaches you go all through the gospels they could not see who jesus was you get to the end of luke you read luke 24 and it says after he was raised from the dead it says then he opened their understanding and they could clearly see who he was. But we're dependent. That should put a fear in us. We're dependent on God to open our eyes to see truth, aren't we? And that's where faith comes from. David prayed this, "Open mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law." Now, brother Hamilton quoted this verse. I heard it as much as you all. I should be able to quote it from memory. I can't. But He quoted this verse to us, but it is crucial because listen, to in light of what we're talking about, Ephesians 1, where Paul prayed, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And here's what Paul prayed, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know, The fact that you know something, you're not going to have faith for a big thing unless you know that the power of God is available to you. And that comes from a revelation. Read it on your own. But what he goes on to say is that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saint, and this part, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe So you can't know of that great power towards you if you're believing without God opening your eyes and my eyes. You're struggling. We need to make that a thing of prayer, don't we? That's Ephesians 1. So where does God want our trust to be? He wants our trust to be in him, doesn't he? Psalm 118, I called upon the Lord in distress, and the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. And it goes on to say, we used to sing this song, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. I've been told that it's an idol to trust God only. It's an error to teach that. I'm scratching my head over that one still. Now, I know what was meant by what was said, that... This whole thing of trusting God only can be a source of pride and self-righteousness. But let me just say this. You could say that about anything spiritual. You could say that about giving, about witnessing, about worship, about how you love. Anything can be a self-righteous idol in that sense, if you see what I'm saying. So does that mean that you shouldn't love, you shouldn't give, you shouldn't worship, and you shouldn't trust God only? No. Just don't do it in a self-righteous, prideful way. If I'm the only one standing, I'll go find my little place in a corner. But that's the way I read my Bible. I'm sorry. Everyone else doesn't see it that way. But that's just the way I see it. Because it is through our faith, our trust in God, that we bring Him glory. And that's the purpose that He created us for. You know, The Westminster Confession, the basic question at the beginning of it is, what is the purpose of man? What is our purpose for being created? What's our purpose for being here on earth? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So listen to this psalm, Psalm fifty fifteen. God says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. I would say that God wants us to trust him so that he can meet our needs and then receive the praise and honor and glory that's due him. Here it is, Psalm fifty-fifteen. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. You look at that backwards. To glorify God means that He has to deliver us, which means we have to be in trouble. And I hate to be in trouble. <laughs> Don't you? I do. I hate being in trouble. We're back to great faith. Do we want to have little faith or no faith? Or do we want to have great faith? Do we want that to be our goal? Do we want our faith to increase? I would hope so. Listen to George Mueller. He says, God delights to increase the faith of his children. Delights to increase the faith of his children. Our faith, which is feeble at first, is developed and strengthened more and more by us. We ought, instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise for patience, to be willing to take them from God's hand as a means. In other words, it's what he's going to use to bring us into great faith or patience or whatever it is we need. He goes on to say, listen to this. I say and say it deliberately, trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. He said, I get letters from so many of God's dear children who say, dear brother Mueller, I'm writing this because I am so weak in faith. And just so surely as we ask to have our faith strengthened, he says, we must feel a willingness to take from God's hand the means for strengthening it. We must allow him to educate us through trials and bereavements and troubles. If he wants soldiers that are Hardened, qualified, ready-for-battle soldiers. The only way that's going to happen is what? If you get out there and get in some fights. That's what's going to harden you. You know, the football team that never hits each other, never gets in practice, never scrimmages, they get in the game, they're going to get killed. But I want to quote this also. George Mueller went on to say this, and I think this is crucial to faith. He says, the church of God is not aroused to see God as the beautiful and lovable one he is. And this is George Mueller. This guy is not Mr. Mushy. But when you read George Mueller and Jonathan Edwards and these guys would preach hard on holiness and all that. And they all would say, you have got to understand, though, and be filled with knowing that God loves you. We got to have that, don't we? george miller says the church of god is not aroused to see god as the beautiful and lovable one he is and hence the littleness of blessedness in other words you're not experiencing the blessedness of god because you're not seeing him that way he says oh beloved brothers and sisters in christ seek to learn for yourselves he says for i cannot tell you the blessedness in other words he's experienced it he says you've got to find this out for yourself He says, in the darkest moments, I am able to confide in him, for I know what a beautiful and kind and lovable being he is. And if it be the will of God to put us in the furnace, let him do it. That so we may acquaint ourselves with him as he will reveal himself and that we may know him better. He wants to put you in the furnace. He's saying, let him do it. We can trust him. (laughs) So why does he allow his children to be in distress, in trials, in darkness, in trouble for defeat? It's what Mueller says. It's so we can know his power, his wisdom and his love for us, his great love for us. Because I'll say it again. Psalm 50. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. All of the stories in the Bible are people in big-time trouble that have to depend on God. That's how their faith is exercised and increased. And also, though, it's how God is glorified on this earth. That's what it's all about. If you would turn back to Luke 5, I want to just do a quick journey through Luke and see how God answering prayers of people in distress brings glory to Him and blessing to them. So turn to Luke 5. And that's the story. We're not going to read the whole thing, but it's the story of the paralytic that had to be carried by his four friends. And it says he's afflicted. He can't walk. It says he's sick of the palsy. I mean, palsy just sounds nasty. But the guy can't even walk. It sounds bad. But look what it says in chapter 5 of Luke, verse 24. He says this, he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power upon earth to forgive sins, he said unto the sick of palsy, I say unto you, Arise, take up your couch, and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them, and took up that whereon he lay, and departed to his own house, doing what? Glorifying God. And look what it says in verse 26, And they all were amazed, and they did what? They glorified God and were filled with fear saying we've seen strange things today. But his blessing brings glory to God through his faith. That's what the promises are there for. And look over in chapter 7. This is the next story after the one we read about the centurion. A widow woman loses her son and not only did she love him but he would have been her only means of support. That's the way it worked back then. Jesus has compassion on this woman in her distress. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her and had compassion on her, he said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto you, arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all. And then what does it say? They glorified God saying a great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people. And this rumor of him went throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. And turn over to Luke 13. And this is the story of the woman with the infirm spirit had her back bowed for 18 years. But look what it says in verses 12 and 13 of Luke 13. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, you are loosed from thine infirmities. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and did what? Glorified God, it says. And then look down at verses 16 and 17. And he tells the Pharisees, he says, ought not this woman, it's an ought, an obligation, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound. Lo, these 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day, In verse 17, when he said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. And the last one, look over in Luke 17 and beginning in verse 11, the 10 lepers 17.11, and it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go, show yourselves unto the priest. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus said, Were there not ten clans? But where are the other nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith, thy faith has made thee whole. The paralytic, the widow, the woman bound by Satan, and this leper All of them were in trouble. They were all in distressing situations. But all of them did what? They came to Jesus in faith. And what did they find? Deliverance, didn't they? Didn't turn one of them away. Deliverance from their troubles. And the result of that was that God was glorified by all. I mean, man, oh man, you got some infirmity that you have been stuck with for a long time, and you know the power of God has hit you and delivered you, how could you not glorify Him? I mean, it's a blessing to you, but it's giving Him the praise He deserves. That's just the way the universe is created to operate. Honestly, and that's the way it will in eternity. Glory to Him for everything He's done. But what was needed? What was needed in all of these cases? What was needed? The power of God, the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ, and faith in Him. That was all that was needed, period. Yep. Amen. Period. No other means were needed. That is what the Bible teaches. God wants us to have great faith. Why? So He can marvel. And when He does, it will be all by His grace. It's not going to be because we were so smart, so tough, so willing to trust him. This was just going to be like a one page introduction to everything and it just kept growing. So anyways, that's why it's part one. It was going to be a one time message, but we're going to have part two next week. We didn't really look at the centurion, but next week I want to look at the centurion. Three things involved in his great faith. Just to give you a little heads up. The three things involved in his great faith, we've sort of looked at today, and one was a great need. The other was great humility, which is always there with faith. And the other was an understanding of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those three things are what made his faith great. Amen. Let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us and how clear the message of the New Testament and the Bible is, Father, as far as what the Lord Jesus will do and what you expect from us, Father. And I just ask you'll give us all hearts, like in Second Chronicles under Asa, Lord, that we will have hearts that are committed to seeking you and to doing your commandments and so that we can see your power and your glory manifesting in our lives and in our midst. And I trust you'll do that, that your word will take effect in all of us here by your spirit, and you'll speak to us, and speak to us further than just this meeting, Lord, and we not just get caught up in other things and forget what you've said. Thank you that you'll do that, and ask your blessing to rest upon all of us today, all of your people here, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.